Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where 50 Cent likes to make his movies. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada, Grand Rapids, and W237CZ, Hudsonville. 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. Or you can listen to the live stream at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me here in the studio is my fellow doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. And Dr. Professor Luke Galen. No, no, my new street name is going to be 25 Cent or 2-Bit. Uh... That, that seems about appropriate. Uh, Teen pop sensation Justin Schieber is off this week. I believe he's actually filming the latest uh, 50 Cent movie. Is I that thought, correct? I, I heard he's going to go in. He's fishing. He's a fisher of men now. So. Oh, okay. Well, good. On this week's episode, we have antisocial behavior, mass murder, and genocide. So just as a heads up, this may not be the most uplifting episode we've ever done. <laughs> just saying. But let's start off here with, um, well, one of the few actual uh, tragedies making it in uh, headlines in the past few weeks, as opposed to the imaginary um, tragedy of the debt ceiling. Over in Norway on July 22nd, I'm sure most of our listeners, all of our listeners probably are familiar with the events that uh, happened, starting with a bombing in Oslo and then the mass uh, shooting spree by one Anders Breivik uh, on a small island in Norway. Claimed the lives of almost 80 people. Uh, He was arrested, and, of course, the initial story, when this was first breaking, that first there was a a bombing in Oslo, was that um, it was suspected that this may be an Islamic terrorist, right? Because that's the first thing that the news media jumps to, going all the way back to Oklahoma Just like City, Oklahoma right? City, where we know that was Muslim. T- no way, it wasn't. Yeah, exactly. Well, it turns out that uh, Brevik, the apparently uh, lone actor in this event, um, he claims to have had accomplices, but so far there's there's no evidence to suggest that he actually did is a Christian terrorist. Not a Muslim, but in fact a Christian terrorist. Well, and people were pretty upset about using Christian and terrorist in the same sentence. Absolutely. Well, of course. Especially on Fox News. Yeah, Bill O'Reilly said that um, he couldn't possibly be a Christian because no one who commits mass murder can be a Christian. But Because, of course, he doesn't know history at all, I think is... uh, what we learned from that you can't well, be a or, or his ideas that a true Christian, those were all well, fake exactly. Christians. Of course, Muslims, Muslims, he wouldn't. True Muslims, however, can. Yeah. Yes, of course. I mean, you know, it, it's incredibly hypocritical. Um, but there is some real um, 
issues with his um, religious affiliation here. Well, thankfully, he had the foresight to leave us a long and detailed <laughs> manifesto. Yeah, he... You know, you gotta... Anybody can blow up buildings and kill people, but to really uh, take a year to put pen to paper... Right. You don't find manners like that among uh, mass murders and terrorists in the past. It's a 1,500-page manifesto um, in the mold of of Ted Kaczynski uh, type of manifesto writing. Now, he's being identified as a Christian because um, he identified himself as a Christian, both on his Facebook profile. This is how we get news, ladies and gentlemen. Um, on his Facebook profile and postings on Christian fundamentalist website, starting with an article here from the Washington Post discussing um, what's really behind Grevick's extremism here. Amid summaries of the 1,500-page manifesto, Grevick's religious beliefs are set in the context of an explicitly political agenda. His vision of a Christian Europe is predicated on the expulsion of Muslims to stem the tide of Islamization and multiculturalism. I I think ultimately what we see from this manifesto is not, uh, certainly he's not a mainstream Christian. This is not someone who... um, Which nobody was arguing that in the first place. That's what the Fox News anchors would like you to think because it fits their narrative on this war on Christianity yes. notion. Obviously, he's not a, not a mainstream Christian in any regard. But what he's doing is, is tying Christianity into his extreme political views. I think more than anything else, it's political and it's his hate of Muslims that motivated the attacks as opposed to this is what Jesus would want yeah, me to do. It's not belief-oriented. It's identity politics. So exactly. in the same way that, you know, like Irish Catholicism, for many of them, they might not even care about specific Catholic beliefs, but they're Irish, and so they must be Catholic. He kind of viewed it as being, if you're, you know, a Northern European, that's a traditional Christian values in a right. group sense, identity sense, and that what group opposes that? It's the Muslims. And so, you know, yes. we're, we're opposed to that group over there. Yeah, the uh, the Washington Post article goes on to say uh, about the manifesto, its references to Christianity is a hodgepodge, a series of bizarre afterthoughts buttressing Brevik's xenophobic and paranoid worldview. And here, here's an uh, important part. Brevik calls himself a cultural Christian. Religious Christians, he observes, have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, which he himself does not. For Brevik, Christendom is a vehicle for preserving European self-identity and is not necessarily opposed to elements of paganism, such as Brevik's own Norse heritage, even though the cross, he argues, is a greater, greater symbol of power than Thor's hammer, Mjolnir. I would argue that point, but okay. Um, in spite of this, uh, the initiation ceremony Brevik envisioned Envisions for the Knights Templar, which is the group he claims to be affiliated with, has no cross, only a candle, sword, and skull. Now, of course, the Christian response to these events, and uh, here from Christian Today, says that um, that he calls himself a cultural Christian, and this in no way links that ideal to true Christian faith. Again, that Bill O'Reilly argument that this isn't what a true Christian is. And the Christian Post 
most Christian of all posts, says, quoting Bill O'Reilly, the left wants you to believe that fundamentalist Christians are a threat just like crazy jihadists are. The primary threat to this world comes from Islamic terrorism. Are Christian fundamentalists just as big a threat as quote-unquote crazy jihadists? Well, this one guy killed 80 yeah, people. This one was. Timothy McVeigh was. Exactly. Maybe the problem is terrorists. <laughs> and fundamentalism or yeah. dogmatism. The uh, Christian Post article, too, quotes a Toronto pastor who believes that even a testimony of love will not convince the world because, um, he states matter-of-factly, they hate us. The world hates Christians. Do not be offended when Christians are unfairly portrayed. Do not be surprised. The world hated Christ, and the world will hate those who follow Christ, who act like Christ. The latest tragedy, he lamented, will be used against Christians and will be used to curtail their freedom to worship. Just a quick point on that one. He's he's quoting scripture there. Yes. Or paraphrasing it, rather. Right, right. It's actually an article of the faith for many Christians that they will be persecuted. Yeah, but their, their approach to this is this guy calling himself a Christian murdered 80 people, and now we're being persecuted. No, 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 no. This is about Muslims being persecuted. Well, right, that right, was his right. target. Is, yeah, they seem to be missing the point. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, poor Christians, the media hates us, the world hates us. Instead of taking this as a moment to reflect on how Muslims must feel when they exactly. are... Yeah, well, when they, a strict equivalence between their beliefs so and that of terrorists. In some, it's when a Christian, in quotes, when a Christian terrorist goes off, don't seek it in the beliefs he's just using religion. But when a Muslim terrorist does something, we're going to go look through the Quran to find out why they're so violent. You know, it kind of highlights the hypocrisy there, you know, that, that, that yeah. the tendency when you have an out-group member do, that does something, you figure that's an intrinsic property of their group right. membership. They're, they're all like that. When an in-group member does something for our group, there's something wrong, we say, well, and we find ways that they're different from us, like, well, the, uh, he's some lone wolf, right. nut, nut yeah. job. Now, let me let me offer up this quote, which comes from Norway's pro-Deutschland group, which is the conservative group in Norway. As Christians and conservatives, we want to express solidarity with the victims of the attacks on July 22nd. Okay, good. Of course, yep. right? The hate that is driving Islamic assassins and fanatic individuals a la Breivik is foreign to Christians and what? conservatives. Say what? The hate that is driving Islamic assassins and fanatic individuals, Allah Brevik. Oh, oh, I get it. He's the fanatic individual exactly. category. Okay. But they're still invoking uh -huh. yeah. the Islam. It's foreign to Christians and conservatives. So this guy is not one of us, even though he <laughs> says, I'm a Christian, not a religious Christian, but he says I'm a Christian and his politics are very conservative. Well, the, good at that. the one that takes the prize though is Glenn Beck's quote because he found out about the you know oh, the, the character of the camp itself that the guy shot up was like their labor party, basically their equivalent of Democrats. The yeah. labor party uh, uh, youth camp was shot up, and so then they started comparing it. What was this place that was shot up? It was like a not Hitler youth camp. Yeah, Glenn Beck what? compared yes. the the. 
children who were murdered to Hitler Youth. What? Yeah. Was he justifying what the shooter was? He wasn't going to go that no. far. But he was, he was commenting on the nature of when, when it came out that the camp itself was – uh, had a political nature it's an to it. Indoctrination. They weren't just camp, like Boy Scouts and Girl yeah. Scouts, but that it was like the the youth of the Labor Party, like a young, you know, a young yeah, Democrats right. League or something like that. That then he had to mention, you know, you had to. Uh, he fought, wanted to find a way to characterize the notion of that kids would go to camp for liberal democratic causes as being somehow indoctrination, right? Like the Hitler Youth were indoctrinated. Huh. Yeah, so... Uh, between... Like the Boy Scouts or the Young Republican Clubs or... <laughs> no, that's uh, not a doctrine. No, 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 no. Those are no, 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 church camps. No, no, not at all. Sorry, which, uh, anticipating hate mail, I wasn't ripping on the Boy Scouts, okay? Please, Boy Scouts, hold no, back your hate. I'm cool with you ripping on. Uh, yeah, me too. I don't like the I Boy Scouts. I used to be Scouts a Boy Scout. <laughs> Did you? Yeah. I don't know. I, I made like it up to uh, second class Scout. I was, a, I was a Boy Scout too, and... Uh, Were you really? Yeah, the the ferocity of the rhetoric depends on who your your den master is. And when I asked for a merit badge on atheism, and there wasn't <laughs> one, I was so out of it. So obviously, what we can see here is is the real threat is not Christianity itself any more than it's Islam itself. That's the real threat um, behind Islamic um, terrorism. More often than not, it's the underlying politics, including in, in 9-11 and so forth, that that are, I think, more powerful forces, whereas the religious rhetoric is just used as a justification. I think I, think I would overall agree, but I would add to it, religion still is active, but it's, oh, yeah. it's, false to think of the, it's false to think of Christianity or Islam or anything as being monolithic, where there are exactly. where there are true Christians. There's as many different styles of Christianity almost as there are Christians. Right. Same with Islam. Many Muslim terrorists are indeed motivated by their religion. Mm -hmm. But that does not mean uh, that their interpretation of Islam is the one true valid one right. or that it holds for all people or is even representative. One of the things we're seeing here is is about – Attacking those people who are different from us, the infidels or the Muslims or Marxists, as um, this gentleman believed he was attacking. Um, so it's that outgroup that uh, becomes the the focus of the attacks as opposed to doing something – for their group, it's more about attacking yeah. the outside group. These are much deeper flaws within our nature yes. <laughs> that existed before any of these religions. There, there's, uh, in fact, even a psychological level to some of this, right? And perhaps we can explore some of that in God Things Like You. It's all psychological. Yeah, the um, this uh, listeners to the show have heard me talk before about about um, about Boy, linking, have they. linking no not just anything oh. linking psychological characteristics among religious people to general psychological traits like in group out group distinctions you know and religion is is no different from that. One of the things I find most interesting as a topic of research is to is to focus. Do people realize when they do that? That is, do people realize themselves? That they are making, that they have an in-group bias versus an uh, or mm -hmm. against out-groups and favoring their own in-group, and does religion 
affect that at all. Uh, and so I was looking at some studies recently that, that assessed the relationship between religiosity or types of religiosity and, and being biased towards your own group and against another group. Like I mentioned earlier on the show, I've talked about things like religious fundamentalism as increasing the level of prejudice that you have against outgroups. That is, to the extent that you're a fundamentalist, you become more biased against people that are different, whether that's ethnically or religiously or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but there was actually a study that, that came out this year that I thought was interesting because um, this study is, by the way, it's by Joanna Blagowska, uh, and it's published in the Journal for the Scientific Study of Religion, where she had a, a series of a couple studies looking at different types of religiousness and what they call limited prosociality. And what that means is it's just a nerdy term for being prosocial, like friendly and helpful, but in a limited sense to only a certain group of people. That is, you can understand that if I treat my friends and family very well, that you'd think I'm a helpful prosocial person. Mm -hmm. But what do you call it when uh, that positive treatment of other people stops at the boundary of the people with whom I'm familiar? That is, I like my family, I like my friends, people in my group, but if it's a stranger, whoa, 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 buddy, yeah. why should I give you money? And so this this term limited prosociality is a way to capture that that people make more of a distinction between people I know and then the other group, everybody else. Mm -hmm. So it turns out, as you probably know from the way I'm talking, that, that certain types of religiousness gin up the person's tendency to make boundary distinctions, to be more limited mm -hmm. in their prosociality. So, uh, again, religious fundamentalism is a trait that is associated with that. And what she did was they had a series of studies where people were given scenarios like you're on a bus and somebody, uh, a woman's there, she falls asleep and her stuff was stolen. And then they ask, how sympathetic are you? Mm -hmm. Or third, you have uh, negative versus positive feelings for her. And they had, though, two different conditions. One was just a woman on the bus. The other one was that she was a woman who was a feminist and reading feminist literature, which, as we know, is a sign of evil. Of course. Uh, to a fundamentalist, yeah. that's value violating. That is, uh, that is, if I'm a fundamentalist, that person, the feminist is, whoa, that's just different than a normal uh, everyday mm -hmm. woman. Therefore, she gets whatever is coming to her. Exactly. And that's what they found. So no surprise there that the fundamentalists were actually rated themselves as being more empathic towards her mm -hmm. and having positive feelings when it was just a just a woman. woman. Yeah. But when she was described as being a feminist, then it flipped, and they were less sympathetic than people who were not fundamentalists or yeah. who were lower on fundamentalists. I, I wonder if she were wearing, uh, say, Muslim garb or something, what their reaction would have been. Yeah, and so often what these studies do is they vary the quality of the target, but like you mentioned, a, a Muslim would also be a different type of outgroup member. There's actually a different uh, a study, too, where they ask people, and here's what I think is the more interesting part. They ask people, you know, uh, with... Friends and family, would you be willing to help somebody out who needed help that was a friend of yours versus uh, a stranger on the street? And it turns out, again, that the people who were more fundamentalist and more religious tended to, uh, religious in general, tended to say that they would be more helpful than people who would, are less religious when the person was familiar to them. Mm -hmm. But when it was a person who was an outgroup member or a stranger, then they became they showed more of a distinction Just there. as bad as the rest of us or well, worse? That, that religion becomes less of a predictor uh, the more the person is anonymous. That is, okay. uh, and, and the more fundamentalist the person is, the more they make a distinction between strangers and 
friends and family. So the Good Samaritan thing not really working not out here. so much, yeah. Mm. But they asked them, actually, they, to rate the, this study, they had to rate themselves as to whether they were universally pro-social. That is, I don't care who you are, I'll help you universally like the Good Samaritan. Well, that is what <laughs> the Good Samaritan story was trying to prove. Apparently, some people were alert to the fact that the fundamentalists in their mists, midst weren't really backing it up when it came yes. to strangers yeah, and foreigners. Did they have Luke's studies to prove it? <laughs> I don't think so. Jesus at all. <laughs> You're zero. Uh, the, um, well, when they asked the people... The, though to rate themselves as to how universally friendly or pro-social they were, the fundamentalists rated themselves higher. That is, mm-hmm. if you're following it, they themselves they thought themselves to be universally non-distinctive pro-social. Right. I love I, everyone. The I same. love everyone, but actually there was the opposite. They were they were more picky about who the person was, friend or, or stranger. So that's the part to me that's interesting. Is is there something about religion that promotes the or, and what is it that promotes the idea that we think of ourselves as being more uh, universal and, mm-hmm. and caring about everybody equally, but that it makes us less so. Not just uh, randomly, but we become even less so, so the more religious. So there's a are. self-deception there, too. Yeah. Not only are they less willing to help others from the, the out-group, but they, they're fooling themselves to think that that's not the case. Yeah, there, yeah. so there's like two, uh, I guess, com- or more, compete, at least two, competing process here. One is that, the, that to the degree that we're religious and especially fundamentalist, we become what's called particular. The, that is, it, it emphasizes a sense of us versus them boundaries. Mm-hmm. But yet it also leads us to think, I would hypothesize, because of the general stereotype that if I'm religious, I must be uh, more universal. It, mm-hmm. it gives us the notion that we're not like that, and in effect, it creates a blind spot. That is, if you weren't religious, you'd say, hey, wait a minute, I'm picking and choosing here. I'm saying this person is worthy of help and this person is not. To the extent that you're religious, my hypothesis might be that religion uh, makes it more difficult for you to see your own duality, that the fact that you are being um, – that you're being limited in your prosociality. Mm-hmm. At least my personal encounter with fundamentalism involved a lot of uh, very self-hating rhetoric. Uh, when I was growing up, I mean, you were taught that you were an evil, You're a sinner. nasty sinner, yeah. and that you are, I mean, I wasn't in a strict Calvinist church, but we definitely, we bought on to the total depravity bit, mm-hmm. and I would assume that would be true, uh, more true of fundamentalists generally. That they would instill more guilt in their congregants uh, than others, but this this seems to be going against that that observation. Well, there's a I think in a lot of the studies that that I drag in, in, into this, there's a tendency to in the study to look again for the belief as being the driving factor, the content, what you learn in church, mm-hmm. these doctrines of depravity that that should make somebody in, in this case like more humble if they're constantly having drummed into right. their skulls in sermons like you're a sinner, you need to do this. But I think what people ignore is that often the content of belief is trumped by just dumb old mundane factors okay. of group boundaries. In the past, I've talked about studies that, that have things that are more like you know aggression that's disinhibited, like people give more shock or something like right. that if they read a violent Bible passage. And some people, like when I talk about that in class, it's hard for them to wrap their heads around because on one hand, you have this doctrine of love, 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 nice, yeah, nice, turn nice. Turn the other cheek. But then uh, how is it that, that, that those people could be more aggressive when... <laughs> Again, we talked there about that the content 
can be misleading as if you're just focused on, well, religion should have this effect because that's what they talk about. But talking about right. something is relatively minor when you talk about these other, uh, compared to these other factors like, again, group identity, um, submission to authority. The subtext of all religion is that you uh, are depraved because and therefore you should submit to God's authority. And what's the effect of being raised in an authoritarian structure? And that is if there's an outgroup member, you know, they need to they're, they're different from us. They're, there's a corrosive effect of being just simply being in an authoritarian obedience type context, mm-hmm. even if it teaches love. So how do we do us, us godless heathens? Uh, the, the study was done in Poland, so almost everybody there was Catholic, mm, and so okay. they didn't have. A, they had some people there that were uh, that were non-religious, but like a lot of the studies, uh, it's representative of whatever population they draw upon. Which we're yeah. talking here in this case, what five percent, maybe six percent? That, right. that would that would not be religious. Hmm. So we just don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. Because I, for one, will not help out someone if if they're wearing a Jesus fish or something. <laughs> no, sir. Look, they for, are not in my group. That would be hard to judge too, because like almost everyone would be out group. Well, exactly. So I would have to not help anyone I ever encounter, which I think is a good policy. So I, I think that could I think that could falsely bump up our score <laughs> if we're kind True. of forced into helping. You're right. You're right. No, that's a good point. Well, when you look at explicit measures of like sympathy towards outgroup members, like, the who's traditional my in-group out, person to help. The, the outgroup members, like you know, homosexuals, minorities, uh, people of color, all those things. That there are the t- traditionally, when you look at studies, atheists and agnostics are the ones with the lowest prejudice. Well, that's good to hear. And yeah, you could argue that the reason that is is because they know what it's like to be a, an outgroup member. Now, um, shall we move on? And talk about possibly the worst thing you can do to an outgroup member? Um, well, thus begins part one of what Dave called this morning our Summer Genocide series. Oh, yeah. Uh, kick back, relax in the sun, and listen to genocide. Some of our listeners may be aware of a book that's getting some critical acclaim in apologist circles. The name of the book is Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament by Paul Copen. It's getting the praise of a lot of apologists such as William Lane Craig, Richard Swinburne. Well, then it must be good. And it will be the subject of today's counter-apologetics segment. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. Paul Copen in his book, Is God a Moral Monster?, is basically trying to argue that, no, God is not a moral monster. It's basically a whitewash of the Hebrew Bible and all the atrocities that we read within it. It covers a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. So for the counter-apologetics today, we are just going to be focusing on Paul Copen's arguments defending the character of God in the face of the extermination of the Canaanites that we read about in Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and other books of the Hebrew Bible. It's quite a lengthy genocide. Is this when the Israelites were moving into the, back from, supposedly back from Egypt and moving into the land of Canaan and milk and honey? Yes, it is. And actually, that brings up some important points for context, is that uh, part of the military campaign of the Israelites as they go into the promised land is to extinguish 
the Canaanites from the land. That does not mean they conducted themselves uh, the same way in all of their military campaigns. Uh, that could be a potential source for confusion in this particular debate. There were two different policies. One policy was for military campaigns outside of the border borders of the promised land, and the other policy was for holy war within the borders of the promised land. Within the borders of the promised land, the policy is harem. Mm -hmm. The Hebrew word harem, oftentimes it is translated devote to destruction. It's actually a ritual act. It's very akin to sacrifice. Everything that breathes, uh, men, women, children, even livestock are killed. And also all of the material spoils of war are likewise destroyed. It, and because it's in the promised land, it's a little like um, if you were defending your own house. If someone broke into your house, you could shoot them and it would be okay because they're trespassing their, their your uh, home. You know, the problem with that analogy is that they're moving into somebody else's house. Well, exactly. <laughs> but I think, it's, I think it's their problem with, uh, with, with that. But there is definitely an aspect of, yes, we are not making any kind of think compromise. Like yeah. you, you move into Mexico, take the territory, right. then right. you have these laws where you can shoot on site. But they believe it's their home. They believe it's yes. God's It is the land that has been promised to them, and therefore they have uh, every right to. Weirdly enough, the Canaanite gods also promised it to the Canaanites. So yeah, that's the problem with divine land contract deals. <laughs> but here, real quick, uh, there's a passage in Deuteronomy which explains briefly both policies. Hmm. So before we go any further, let me read this. This is Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10 through 18. Uh, this is the first one is the policy for people outside of the borders of Canaan. When you draw near to a town to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. If it accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all the people in it shall serve you in forced labor. If it does not submit to you that's peacefully, the good yeah, yeah, right. yes, that's the the good option is forced labor, slavery, enslavement. Okay. Uh, if it does not submit to you peacefully but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when Yahweh, your God, gives it into your hand, you shall put all of its males to the sword. You may, however... Does that mean circumcise or kill? Uh, that means kill. Oh, okay. Just Circum clarifying. Circumcise first, then kill. <laughs> You may, however, take as your booty the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the town, all is spoil. You may enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which Yahweh has given to you. Thus, you shall treat all the towns that are very far from you, which are not towns of the nation here. Here's the switch. But as for the towns of these people that Yahweh your God is giving you as your inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. You shall annihilate them, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, just as Yahweh your God has commanded, so that they may not teach you to do all the abhorrent things that they do for their gods, and you thus sin against Yahweh your God. So I, I think it's pretty unequivocal what is being asked of the people here. Yeah, yeah. Wipe them out so that they can't possibly um, affect your culture in any right. way, shape, or form. Kill them all. Uh, yeah, annihilate is, is pretty clear. It's a strong uh, word. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, in case there was any doubt about it, here's a quick sample of it actually taking place. Uh, we have several instances of this, but Joshua uh, 6, 17 through 20 is a great example. It's, it's the story of Jericho. Um, the city and all that is in it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. That is that word harem again. Hmm. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are in her house shall live because she hid the messengers we sent. Uh, if you know the story of Jericho, they send in spies and Rahab actually gives them safe shelter in her tavern. And so as payback, they're uh, sparing her from the slaughter. As for you, keep away from the things devoted to destruction so as not to covet or take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel an object of destruction or bring trouble upon it. I read that verse because it's important to know that this was enforced by God if people broke Haram, that is, if they went any less if than destroying kept everything. Or kept people alive, anything. God would curse them and oftentimes punish them with death. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown, and as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpets, they raised a great shout and the wall fell down. So the people charged straight ahead into the city and captured it, and they devoted to destruction, harem, by the edge of the sword of the city, both men, women, young, old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys. So complete slaughter. That's just wasteful. Yeah, it is. They do. They keep the trees. I know I point this out every time Harem comes up on the podcast, but I, I just I find it cute that they're like, but don't cut down the trees. <laughs> that would be wrong. That'd be going too far. Jericho is the first Arbor Day city, apparently. In the... We don't have anything against their orchards. Just the livestock. So uh, Paul Copen's task then is to convince us <laughs> over the course of three chapters that those verses don't actually mean what they say. His book just strings a, a series of claims. So there's there's no way that I can address point by point every single argument that he makes. Right. But I, I actually I want to I want to give my public approval and thanks to uh, Tom Stark, who actually has taken the time to refute point by point absolutely everything Copen says. Um, it's a free PDF that you can get online. It's called Is God a Moral Compromiser? And it's a review of Copen's book that's actually longer, significantly <laughs> longer than Copen's book. In fact, he, he really goes overboard sometimes. He will spend, you know, five or six pages just blowing to pieces even really trivial or minor points uh, made by Copen. Wow. So, a lot of what I'm going to say in this segment is going to be really just taken by Tom Stark. I will try to uh, make sure that I'm pointing that out every time I do it. Uh, but he's really done a great service for all all of us so that we don't have to now. Check out our website, doubtcast.org, and we'll have a link to uh, Stark's PDF and make sure you, uh, make sure you uh, support him in any way you can and as he's not going to be getting a lot of financial kickback for all that work that he's put into it. So Copen's argument, uh, the arguments I want to address are these. Number one, Copen argues that God gave the Canaanites a chance to repent and avoid destruction. He claims that God will only annihilate people as a last resort. I, I know. Even, that, even the... that feels much better, doesn't it? <laughs> oh, yeah. What a softy. You know, I'm glad we can joke about um, people 
trying to whitewash genocide. Yeah, well. A second point, that the slaughter of the Canaanites was actually morally justified as their moral and spiritual depravity reached a threshold where they were beyond redemption. Number three, that the conquest of the Holy Land is not actually a case of genocide or ethnic cleansing. In fact, the Bible deliberately exaggerates the level of the killing that actually took place. Uh, number four, that for the most part, the Israelites were not killing women, children, and babies, but combatants only. And number five, that even if he did kill women, children, and babies, the women deserved it, and the babies and children would have gone to heaven anyways, so it's all okay. <laughs> oh, dear heavens. Yeah. Wow. And again, we we wouldn't even be taking on a crackpot on this show uh, of this well, magnitude. Well, no, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe in the past we have. But seriously, I would not have spent 15 hours reading through and annotating Copen's argument if this guy it wasn't you know all the rage within the apologetics community He's right being now taken seriously yeah. by people on his side so we if need you to read take the christian if you well. read the christian apologetics bloggers they are just going nuts about this mm -hmm. stuff they say it puts the lie to dawkins and sam harris and all the new atheists and yep. stuff they're beating their chest over this thing, and it's and it's actually it's a really really pitiful example of apologetics. Mm -hmm. It really is uh, to drop the humor for a moment. This is the worst I think an apologist can stoop to: whitewashing the genocide of an entire race, mm -hmm. tr somehow trying to portray it as not as bad as you might think or morally justified. I really can't think of a, of a worse thing you could do with your intellect. But don't you get that all the time when you when you mention atrocities to, to apologists is that they, they might fight it about the interpretation at first, like, well, they don't mean men, those were bo children, boys, they were actually teen or stuff like that. But then eventually they say it must have been justified because yeah. God did it. They must have had it coming. I mean, it's basically like I've talked about before, like system yeah. justification or, or just world belief. They start with the outcome, God did it, and then they work backwards to oh, say, oh, I, am, I am not saying this is new or atypical of what an apologist does. If this book is distinctive in any way, it's just the amount of ink that he spends trying to do this mm -hmm. and and uh, the the very strong endorsement. It's popular right now. I really think the skeptical side should be taking the moral high ground, and one of the best ways to do that is to remind the Christian or the Jew of some of the atrocities in their own holy book. Well, to remind Theists. Bill O'Reilly that, in fact, Christians right. can be responsible for mass murder and, and other horrible things. Theists have picked up on this strategy, and they're going to be responding with this. So I mm -hmm. think it's... Uh, it is good to uh, help arm our side with uh, arguments to counter it. And it's not that hard either. Number one, God gave them the chance to repent or avoid destruction. Copen says in his book, sometimes, quote, sometimes God simply gives up on, on nations, cities, or individuals when they've gone past the point of no return. But judgment, whether direct or indirect, is always the last resort. And to prove this, he cites Genesis 15, 16, uh, where God says that he was willing to wait 400, about 430 years because the sin of the Amorite, which is a Canaanite tribe, mm -hmm. uh, has not yet reached its limit. 
He also brings up the fact that Noah would have preached uh, for 120 years uh, before the people around him became ripe for justice. And so this is all to show uh, that God is patient with people. To some extent. Yes, and waits for them to dig themselves deep enough to where they are beyond redemption. And at has, that point, he will He has like a DEFCON board up there in heaven where they, <laughs> yeah. they're on level orange. <laughs> yeah. You're on level orange, buddy. <laughs> Tom Stark points out that the passage here in Gen- Genesis, uh, he says, shows that judgment is not God's last resort here. It's his first resort. Right. The passage in Genesis does does not show God's intent to save the Canaanites. It actually shows that their destruction was a foregone conclusion, mm-hmm. that God is just waiting for the appropriate time to do it. And further evidence uh, w- could be shown from this that uh, they don't they aren't sent a prophet. Much later in the Hebrew Bible, we have examples of of people that are sent prophets. Jonah was yeah, one Jonah such is an example and, yeah. of that. Um, to try to to try to convert the people before they are destroyed. Mm-hmm. This is not the case with the Canaanites. No. Abraham spends a significant amount of time in the land of Canaan, never tries uh, to uh, convert or yeah. save them. Or, yeah. After the Exodus, uh, the first Israelites to enter the Promised Land are on a military reconnaissance mission, mm-hmm. scoping out how to actually uh, kill them. Uh, they are not. As a last resort. In. Yes. So this is just silly rhetoric from Copen. It, it doesn't match what the text actually says. Right. Later, Copen says that any Canaanite who would have embraced God would have actually been shown mercy. And uh, he uses two examples uh, to, to illustrate this, that uh, Rahab the harlot, but as we just discussed, the text says specifically why she was saved. Uh, and it was because she assisted the soldiers, not because she accepted. Yeah, it's the, not as their if God. Yeah. they presented Yahweh to her, and then he, she accepted, and so that's why she's being she excused. Yeah. In fact, if you look at Rahab's speech, she talks about the whole people. They're quivering with fear because they know that Yahweh is the true God. They've heard of the miracles and everything else, and they know it's too late to do anything. So. But if if you you don't need to go there, Joshua eleven twenty makes it absolutely clear. Says, uh, for it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts so that they would come against Israel in battle, in order that they might be utterly destroyed, and might receive no mercy, but be exterminated, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you God... don't get much clearer than that. God hardened their hearts, this just, is like, another, Pharaoh, just right? like Pharaoh. Just like Pharaoh, yeah. This is another instance where God apparently trumps free will and, and, mm-hmm. and makes people right. obstinate in order to let his plan go on. As, as Paul would say centuries later, God made raised up Pharaoh as a vessel onto destruction. He set up that situation for no other reason but to destroy and mm-hmm. humiliate. They're like puppets. They're like So God's like the Adjustment Bureau. <laughs> The, no one saw that movie. The, the, I saw that movie. Yeah. His other defense of this is to say, well, the Gibeonites, they were Canaanites, and they signed a treaty with uh, with the Israelites. So that proves that they weren't necessarily going to be exterminated. They had a chance to repent. Uh, of course, what Copen doesn't point out is, does anybody remember why the Gibeonites were able to sign a treaty with the Israelites? Mm-hmm. They lied to the Israelites and told them 
that they didn't actually they weren't actually from the land of Canaan. They were from oh, outside of the borders. Nice. And by the time by the time Joshua discovered this, he was pretty pissed off because he'd entered into a covenant with them. Mm. Uh, and so he couldn't kill them anymore for being Canaanites. Were, were killed in the courtroom on that <laughs> contract. <laughs> so yeah, another great example of a, of a of an apologist. You know, if he's evoking the the uh, Gibeonites He has to have read the passage. Right. He has to know the fact why they entered into a treaty together. So you think he's just willfully ignoring the uh, the, the truth? Yeah. And and uh, he's – I cannot accept any other interpretation in that he's just hoping people don't look up the verses. Um, Tough luck, buddy. So that – the idea that they were given a chance is – it flat out contradicts what the texts actually say here. Oh, but you can't really believe the Bible when it comes to this stuff, right? He doesn't use that argument. He actually does, uh, but we're we're, we're getting <laughs> yes, there. I was yeah, gonna he, say. he actually he does. does. At, at his peak, he really mm-hmm. does say you can't trust the Bible on this stuff. Mm-hmm. We'll get there in a moment. So second point, that the slaughter of the Canaanites was morally justified as their moral and spiritual depravity reached a threshold where they were beyond redemption. Page 218 of Copen's book, he points out how wicked these Canaanites were uh, because they practiced ritual prostitution. They were having sex. Even though it wasn't the Rahab temple. the one uh, who was saved and she was a prostitute? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. All right. They practiced ritual prostitution. They were homosexuals, some of them, uh, bestiality and child sacrifice. So let's kill all of the children. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly with you killing your children. That's, that was one of my favorite. Kill that was one of my favorite lines from Stark's critique. Uh, he says, "Okay, so in order to punish the Canaanites for sacrificing a few of their children, Yahweh ordered the Israelites to kill all of their children." If you believe that, that children sounds are, are born bad and depraved forever, <laughs> wouldn't they save you a lot of sweat just to have sit back and let them kill each, their kids off? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you really you have to be a, a pretty firm believer to to buy to, this. Line. Yeah, to yeah. see that as morally redeeming. <laughs> Stark made another good point. He says uh, there's certainly a lot of as far as all the other crimes that are listed are sexual crimes mm-hmm. by Copen. Right. Uh, so prostitution, homosexuality, and bestiality. Stark says. Uh, there's certainly a lot of sex going on in your average U.S. college, and that sex generally doesn't serve any other purpose than sex itself. Uh, so at least Canaanite ritual sex had a purpose. They thought it fertilized their crops, actually. Right, of course. He said, uh, how would you react if God told you to go slaughter everyone at Oklahoma State University, even the virgins, because there was too much promiscuity and debauchery going on? A good point. Yeah. This is, wait, this is OSU, not OU? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Luke's, Luke's pausing to think, well, I don't know. The Cowboys versus the Sooners, I don't know who's more depraved. Mm. This is not to be taken as an endorsement of genocide. <laughs> I personally, though, I, I love, this is my favorite part of Copen's condemnation of the Canaanites. He said, well, add to this the bloodlust and the violence of the Canaanite deities. And then he quotes a Canaanite deity 
So he brings up a passage about the goddess Anath, one of the Canaanite deities. Quote, the blood was so deep that she waded up to it in her knees, nay, up to her neck, and under her feet were human heads, and above her human hands flew like locusts. And in her sensuous delight, she decorated herself with suspended heads while she attached hands to her girdle. Her liver swelled with laughter and her heart was full of joy, uh, pointing out how bloodthirsty these Canaanite deities are. And he adds, well, given this is the setting, Copen says, it's no wonder God did not want the Israelites to be led astray from obedience to the one true God. The seductive power of the blood-covered goddess standing on human heads and so forth. Essentially what this is saying is the the bloodlust of Yahweh is justified because of the bloodlust of the Canaanites were evil. Um, But uh, Stark had a really good response, so I'm going to rip him off one more time. What Stark did was to compare this passage of Anath to... um, Excerpts that he took out of Isaiah, and uh, before the show, I asked Dave if he would help me do a dramatic reading of some of these passages from Isaiah. I trampled down peoples in my anger. I crushed them in my wrath. Their juice spattered on my garments and stained all my robes. For Yahweh is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hordes. He has doomed them, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. Yahweh has a sword. It is sated with blood. It is gorged with fat. Their land shall be soaked with blood, and their soil made rich with fat. Cursed is the one who keeps back the sword from bloodshed. The righteous will rejoice when they see vengeance done. They will bathe their feet in the blood of the wicked. I will not pity nor spare nor have mercy but destroy them. I shall make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. You are my war club, my weapon of battle. With you I smash man and woman. With you I smash the old man and the boy. Okay, so we got to cut this off somewhere. <laughs> this could go on all day long, but I think that's enough to get the point. It's from the book of Saw, part four. <laughs> <laughs> and the bloody hand. And... On a more serious note, uh, Stark points out um, how common it is in the case of a genocide that the victims are actually portrayed as this kind of irredeemably Just evil world theory. Group. Yeah. Uh, so really, we don't seriously, we don't usually take the testimony seriously of the perpetrators of the genocide when they characterize their victims. We have to we wipe really out shouldn't. the Jews. They're spreading the black plague. Right. Yeah. If you were to read Nazi propaganda or that sort of thing, uh, it's it's not going to be depicting Jews fairly. So we we would never use that as a reference for. Well, yeah, I guess this is makes. Genocide justifiable. Well, and you could you could go even further to say, um, you know, you you've read some of the Ugaritic texts, Dave, when you're teaching your mythology mm-hmm. class. Are they really all that different in character from the Bible? No. Do they do they show that these people had no moral sense or tried to teach 
instill values in, in no, their people it, at all? It, in fact, I've made the case that a lot of the code of Hammurabi is is a better ethical code than uh, the Ten Commandments. I mean, there, obviously, there's stuff we wouldn't want to follow in that either. But there are protections for slaves and women yeah. and children. These which people you don't did see. sacrifice their children. Yeah. But, you know, if you go back to Episode Four, uh, there's a case to be made that uh, that the Israelites may have also absolutely at one point. yes. All right. So the third point. The idea that the conquest of the Holy Land is not a case of genocide or ethnic cleansing. In fact, the Bible deliberately exaggerates the level of the killing that took place. This is a, a really convoluted argument, so I'm just I'm going to deal with it on Wait, a pretty surface stop, level. Stop, rewind, stop, play. He just said that the Bible exaggerates something? Yes. This is an apologist yeah. for the Bible saying that the Bible exaggerates. Something. Yes, but he does uh, – what he will try to do, and, and this is typical apologist doublespeak, mm-hmm. is he will try to insist that it was not deceptive. It was exaggerations, but it was not deceptive uh, because everybody was familiar with the genre. So uh, like he'll cite this. Joshua 10.40 says, So Joshua defeated the whole land, and he left no one remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord Israel commanded. Mm -hmm. And then several passages later, we find out that eh, Joshua didn't actually kill all these people. There's still some of these pesky Canaanites uh, around. Rather than admitting that's a contradiction, in fact, that's what Stark points out, he's correct, is that these passages are actually from two different sources. Uh, One is the Deuteronomist source, the other is the priestly source. Of course. Um, They are contradictions. Um, They're just, they've been woven together by an editor. Uh, But rather than consider that, uh, Copen assumes there can't be contradictions here. And so what this is, is this is the text nodding to us. What, what what we can see is that when they say utterly destroyed or exterminated or wiped them out, that's the text is telling us that's not really what they mean. Uh, if, what he's saying is that we shouldn't take the text literally here. We should read it as hyperbole. Here's Copen directly what he says. Joshua used rhetorical bravo, bravado language of his day. Just as we might say that a sports team blew their opponents away or slaughtered or annihilated them, the author likewise followed the rhetoric of his day. And I think that's partly true. I mean, probably so much of the historical accounts in the Bible are exaggerations. But what's to stop me from just saying, uh, well, when he says created in six days, he didn't really exactly or, you know, love all my neighbors. He didn't. And it still doesn't resolve the moral problem of this. Okay, so they didn't actually finish the job and kill every single last one of them. Some life. So that must mean that what they did was moral to quote Stark here. They're just boasting. Yeah. Boasting in the dehumanization of their enemies, boasting in the total annihilation of entire populations, boasting in the slaughter of women and children, and boasting that they left no survivors and showed absolutely no mercy to their victims. That isn't just rhetoric. It's evil rhetoric. Mm -hmm. Also was the idea that this is not ethnic cleansing in any sort of way. Uh, Copen informs us that there were plenty of non-Hebrews that converted and became Israelites, and there's laws offering hospitality to foreigners, or uh, sometimes Israelites will go and marry people from foreign nations, like like Moses did. Uh, and this is all to show that the 
Jews were racially cool with everybody in their oh, region, sure, sure. so that fighting the Canaanites couldn't possibly have been ethnically motivated. Because as long as you're including some people from outgroups, that must mean you're cool with all outside right, groups. Right, right. So like when the Hutus yeah. slaughtered the Tutsis, it wasn't ethnic cleansing, no. because the Hutus got along with many of the ethnic groups that existed outside of their territory. Exactly. So it wasn't ethnically Um, motivated at all. Uh, But anyways, Copen says, so we should put to rest this idea of divinely inspired racism or anthrocentrism. Uh, God was concerned with sin, not ethnicity. Sin like the slaughtering of kids. It was the Canaanites were sinful, every last one of them, even the babies. And the oxen. So that clearly has nothing to do with ethnicity of course they were just born sinful because of their skin color of course that's bs even even if the the text frames itself as being against their sin which it often does um if you know your biblical history you know that the patriarchs are absolutely there's a whole motif in genesis about how we need to find non-canaanite wives for isaac and jacob Mm -hmm. Because they can't marry these these dirty Canaanites. If if you look after the exile, they're pretty blatant about the racial component. Even upper class Jews post exile have their families cast away from them. Ezra records it's actually a really tragic scene in the Bible because as Ezra nine puts it, that the holy seed has mixed itself with the people of the land, and that they can't possibly have that. And even Jesus who you know, much later, who praised the Canaanite woman as having more faith than a lot of a lot of Israelites? That passage began with him not even wanting to address her because she was a dog. Right. So to claim that there's no record of racism here, that this is not ethnically motivated, is it not, would be laughable if it wasn't such a tragic situation. Not to be too current event bound, but does anybody think that, that being steeped in texts like this might maybe predispose people to, uh, you know, uh, even in current days, like uh, if you're settling on somebody else's land, for example, that you might want to consider them ethnically yeah. un- impure and therefore your actions are justified? Uh-huh. Well, the Crusaders sure referred to the Canaanite annihilation, and um, I was reading just recently about uh, a lot of the rhetoric of manifest destiny, and uh, when settlers pushed the Indians, yeah, out. settlers pushed the Native Americans out. They they viewed a lot of the plagues, uh, they viewed a lot of the uh, diseases that were rampant in the Native American populations as just like the plagues that mm-hmm. God sent to finish the Canaanites off. Uh, another kind of weird attempt to avoid calling this a genocide. Here's a passage at the end of Joshua. It says, be careful. This is from Joshua 23, uh, 11 through 13. Be very careful, therefore, to love your Lord, your God. For if you turn back and you join the survivors of these nations left here among you and intermarry them, Uh, so that you marry their women and and they yours, know assuredly that the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you and a scourge on all sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land that the Lord has given you, which Copen, for some strange reasons, evokes this as proof that that they were not genocidal. 
Uh, because apparently what? some – well, yes, because it says some people were oh, left. Oh, so there are some of them left. So therefore, yeah. And more specifically, it points it's out – It's only genocide if you yeah. finish the job. <laughs> And more specifically, it says here, God will not continue to drive out these nations. Copen says, quote, driving out or dispossessing is different from wiping out or destroying. Utter annihilation wasn't intended uh, and escaping from the land was encouraged. So his idea is what the Israelites are really trying to do is just, you know, Attack a few cities, and then everybody else will get scared, and they'll they'll leave. And this was God knew this would be a really long process. Except what he ignores is some of the verses that he's quoted earlier. Actually, the very next verse, Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy seven twenty says that any survivors or fugitives, God is going to finish off with a plague. <laughs> So the passage, the passage itself is not ambiguous about this at all. It's, no. it's not – driving them out does not have this notion of just trying to get them to relocate. Um, yeah. Driving them out is a way to destroy their culture. Get rid culture. of them so God can kill yeah. them personally. Yeah, sure. A few are going to survive, but you're getting rid of them as a people, mm-hmm. and that, that's the goal. So I'm getting tired of this already, uh, <laughs> but real quick, let's hit some of these uh, some of these other points. Uh, his claim that the Israelites, for the most part, were not killing women, children, and babies, but combatants only, I think, is is one of the most dishonest arguments in this piece. But it's probably one of the most important ones too. Um, that's really the only way he can get away with whitewashing this is to right. get around this uncomfortable. If, if it's fact. a war and you're killing right. combatants, then that makes it's it a justifiable. slightly different deal. It still doesn't justify it killing doesn't. every single soldier, well, taking no prisoners. But still, of course, some of us would argue that it doesn't actually justify killing anyone. But uh, okay. There's a lot of different things he says, but some of the the kickers are uh, that references to. Men and women, young and old, in the text, mm-hmm. don't actually mean men and women, young and old. The It's a stock phrase for everyone. And he goes on to say that it doesn't imply anything about the gender or age of the victims. So that's his first attempt to get around this. So He doesn't actually really back this up either. But he hasn't gotten around it at all. He's saying, well, it doesn't literally mean... Every man and every woman. He means everyone. Well, what this what is doing here? is this is he's trying to open up the option that these were, and that's his next claim that these were all political. Uh, these were all military fortified cities. Apparently, he thinks the Canaanites were just a race of of soldiers, like the Spartans, with, with no families yeah, or right. anything else. Right. Is is basically what he's. So these were all forts instead of cities. Yeah, they they're were, attacking yeah. the forts, and the and the maybe the maybe the villages around are going to all flee in dispersion to get away. Wow. Um, which is this is silly um, because we have plenty of passages throughout the Hebrew Bible that he's clearly aware of, that describe in detail the joys of smashing babies' skulls on mm-hmm. rocks right. or ripping open pregnant women. They don't mean babies and pregnant women. They mean soldiers with babies. 
Luke and I were talking about a story. I I had just read this yesterday. Somehow this this little atrocity from Israel's history has I've completely missed it with as many times as I've read the Bible. I don't remember this. Read Judges 21. It's a great account of how the Israelites almost annihilate one of their own tribes. The tribe of Benjamin. The guy's a woman is raped. Yeah, the guy's traveling in a, in a foreign land and a mob shows up at the door and uh, wants to kill him. And so they throw his concubine out to satisfy the crowd where she's whatever. Right. And then kill of Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> yeah. And so then when they come out in the morning, she's basically there and he's like, let's go back. And she dies. So he goes back to his group and says, you know, I traveled in this land and this is the way they treated me. So we need to go get them. So they basically saddle up the posse, go after the other group and, so and the, slaughter. Yeah, they basically they kill so many of the tribe of Benjamin. Um, As punishment. A few of the men kind of escape to an encampment that that they can uh, they can protect themselves in. And mm-hmm. as the rest of the Israelites are laying siege, they suddenly realize, oh shit, we killed all the women and all the babies. There's no way that the, the remaining men from the tribe of Benjamin have nobody to breed with. We may have just extinguished one of the twelve tribes of Israel. Wow. So you know what they do to fix the situation? Capture some women somewhere. They go to a nearby town that was remaining pacifistic throughout this whole conflict, (laughs) and they wipe out everyone in that village except for the virgins and give their virgins to the Benjamites. So there's no, even with their own people, there's no doubt that they are killing, slaughtering uh, women and children. Yeah, it's not. It's not even a contestable thing. They're not sparing the Canaanites. And what's so funny? Again, I'm using funny and really loosely here, is that Copen knows this because his third chapter, he devotes three chapters to the Canaanite sacrifice. Mm-hmm. His third chapter is essentially, I'm guessing you probably didn't buy any of my previous arguments. <laughs> You're right. His third chapter is uh, begins with trying to explain, well, all right. Maybe they did kill men, women, and children, but, and I'll quote Copen here, Canaanite women would have participated in immoral and degrading activities. Uh, The women might not have been combatants, but they were hardly innocent, and we could add that the elderly Canaanites clearly shared blame in the moral corruption of their culture, Mm. and that God is, as, as far as the babies are concerned, God is the author of life, and he has a rightful claim on it as his creator. I guess, what was the point of the other two chapters if he was just yeah, going to say, yeah, well, God yeah. makes life so he can... Yeah. He says, if any infants and children were killed, uh, they would have entered into the presence of God. Though deprived of an earth, earthly life, these young ones wouldn't have been deprived of the greatest good of enjoying everlasting friendship with God. Are you serious? This is the same type of crap. We just yeah. talked before about, like, I can remember, like, in history with, when driving the Native Americans out, that they would, like, declare a village combatants, and when they would shoot everybody down, they'd find, like, you know, women, women, children, old men. There's nobody there, but they would say, well, the kids could have picked up a rifle soon. Or, yeah. Yeah, the, the women were Well, pretty, so, you know, so for the this Christ- is the Bible they were reading. <laughs> so for the Christian Christians listening to this show, how is it that Christians could want to distance themselves from this Norway shooter and have nothing to do with him, that if you feel that way, I feel you should be equally distancing yourself 
from people like Copen here mm -hmm. and all these other apologists. I mean, these are mainstream guys. These aren't uh, – Paul Copen is not some Hicksville village in the local snake-handling Baptist right. church here. He's not fringe like the no. Norway shooter was. No, these guys and, – and the people who endorse him like Swinburne and, and, uh, and William Lane Craig, Craig. – uh, these guys are doctors at universities. Mm -hmm. They are professional philosophers and academics uh, in some cases. How is it that they can endorse this crap? Right. It is so clearly on its surface uh, trying to excuse the worst of human behavior. There's one argument that uh, we're not going to take up today, but it will form the uh, basis of our next episode, part two on the Canaanite genocide, one of the more bizarre arguments that Copen brings up is evidence from archaeology, which I guess the good news is if you're familiar with the archaeological evidence, this, uh, this genocide most likely never did take place. There is not a lot of historical evidence to support that it, it happened. So that and really Copen, should have been the argument he went with. Copen tries to selectively take bits and pieces of that archaeology. He doesn't want to say that the Bible is wrong, but he tries to take bits and pieces of it to argue that, well, it must not have been as extensive as people might think because we can look at these cities and we can tell that they were never, you know, destroyed, that they never had this level of inhabitants. Um, so next week, Justin's going to uh, – we're going to discuss the, ar the archaeological evidence for what actually happened in Canaan and discuss what could possibly have been the motivations of the biblical writers in making up this in story. fabricating this this story of the genocides all right so that'll be next time on our summer genocide series Let's end this week with uh, some props and shit lists, shall we? On our shit list, let's start there. We have Governor of the great state of Texas, Rick Perry. Oh, boy. There's really not a lot to say about that because everybody already knows pretty much where they stand on this already. If you're, right. a, if you're a Christian evangelical, you love it. And if you're everybody else, you don't. But, but Perry decides to have a, um, a, a as governor, then to to sponsor a prayer event at a stadium in Texas, where they would pray for a variety of things. But in general, you know, good governance and mm -hmm. every for God to make it please rain, pretty please stop baking the Southwest in hundred degree temperatures. And he struggled mightily to keep it non-sectarian, but he invited a bunch of other people to come to it. And all these other governors basically are uh, like, you know, would you like to come? And everybody suddenly has vacation plans. Yep, together. exactly. Everybody, everybody <laughs> oh, just can't said make no. it. Yeah. So basically, anybody who was there was already like evangelical people. The the family, James Dobson, managed to find time to right. Make it down. Well, and the important thing to to note is I forget the the location where they held it, but it was uh, at, at a big stadium, like a eight hundred thousand seat stadium, <laughs> and they only sold like eighty thousand tickets. If you look at pictures of this, it's kind of it's like looking at a Pittsburgh Pirates game. There's like a couple people in the bleachers <laughs> up there, maybe with a banner, and then everybody else is crammed out right. on the field. 
But this was paid for <laughs> by your tax dollars, right? Or their tax dollars. Well, their Texas. tax dollars. Texas, tax yeah. Texas, yeah. Not much, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and and this is of course um, uh, Governor Rick Perry who suggested earlier that Texas could uh, secede from the United States. To which I say, leave us Houston and Austin. Yeah, yeah. As long as we get Austin, take the take rest. It, take it. Take the rest. So. Um, so Freedom From Religion Foundation sued to to prevent this from happening. Um, the judge threw it out. Judge threw it out for lack of standing. standing which is apparently their, their go-to thing these days is, yeah. well, you're not personally that harmed by it, so. Yeah, no except losses. tax dollars and the fact that it's, Perpetuates you know, the image my that... First Amendment, but whatever. On our props list, this is good news. Um, is it a Katy Perry rally? Because I'd go to that. I, I don't even. Who is Katy Perry? She's Smurfette. Oh okay. no, she's she's a singer. She's, I kissed a girl and I liked it. Oh, I know she's that. She's married yeah, to okay. Russell Brand, the tall. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, not a Katy Perry rally. Um, good news um, by way of the military freedom. What is it? Military, military, religious, freedom, religious freedom foundation. The military, <laughs> the military religious freedom foundation, um, who with their efforts, the help of uh, the website Truth Out, um, got the uh, U.S. Air Force to pull a Christian-themed ethics training video for nuclear oh, missile officers. Did anyone look at the PowerPoint for this thing? I didn't see the PowerPoint. Oh, it's so frightening. Be, I want there to be like a, a cheesy video. With but the, I, I mean, it's not just it's not just about nuclear weapons, but it's it's the ethics behind using nuclear weapons. Because they, they have uh, done studies where a lot of their people, when it comes down to just, it, won't push the button. And so they right. have to find a way to convince them that if if the higher ups say that you need to push the button, it's justified. Yeah. So it has these things like uh, you might think that religious people wouldn't be allowed to annihilate noncombatants, <laughs> but, but you'd be true. wrong, as we previously uh, discussed, we, uh, as we have pointed out. <laughs> in uh, well, in one of the things that um, that the uh, MRFF pointed out is that one of the people quoted in the PowerPoint is Warner von Braun, a former SS officer, Nazi scientist. And when I heard this, I thought, okay, not that I'm a fan of Warner von Braun, but it's real easy to go, oh, Nazi, clearly this yeah, is that, bad. Yeah, that is a little... He's known as the, the father of the space program the dude here in the United States. put us on the moon. States. You can say yeah. what you want. I mean, it, you know... Obviously, and, and there's you know questions there too about about the ethics of bringing in Nazi scientists. But um, he is a legitimate scientist in the field of of rockets and that sort of. It's thing. not politically incorrect to evoke a quote from him. Exactly, they don't quote him talking about science. They quote him talking about ethics. Yeah, okay. That Here, is, here's, that's... The, uh, here's the quote they used from him. We knew that we had created a new means of warfare and the question as to what nation, to what victorious nation we were willing to entrust this brainchild of ours was a moral decision. Emphasis in the document more than anything else. We wanted to see the world spared another conflict such as Germany had 
had just been through, and we felt that only by surrendering such a weapon to people who were guided by the Bible could oh, such an assurance wow. to the world be secured. Yeah. I find it fascinating that if you're, let's say you're a German and scientist building rockets, that you're like, oh, these things could be used as weapons, you know, and that you have to come up with some justification. Well, at least it's these Bible-driven uh, leaders like uh, Hitler and those yeah. guys that are going to use the rockets properly. Exactly. exactly. An- an- another kind of nitpicking thing on the on the riff release mm-hmm. was that they um, part of their problem was it with it was that it evoked Augustine's uh, just war Saint Augustine philosophy, yeah, yeah. and that in and of itself I I can speak as one with plenty of ethics books on my uh, on my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Any discussion of military ethics begins with Augustine's. Right. Uh, it, it's a springboard for any, you know, for all future discussion. Um, so the mere fact that it would have evoked that doesn't mean that it is religious in nature. Now the curriculum, it just turns out, yeah, it actually when is. You, when you look at, yeah. Right. So the problem is not that it mentions Augustine or just war theory. It's it's all the religious crap they pile on top of it. Exactly. I mean, that's, you know, from a philosophical, we're having this philosophical discussion about the ethical use of nuclear weapons. Right. And Augustine here's historically is, one of the first yes. writers on, yeah, that is that would be right. the beginning of a good class on military ethics. And if that was where they went with it, that would be one thing. But, but this was not it, the case. That was not the case at all. But Jesus rained down fire from the sky in Revelation, so it ain't so bad. Exactly. Actually, if you look at the materials here, it's so incredibly shallow. Yeah. That it was actually frightening to me to think like this is this is the level of education that they're giving to the people who are button operating the buttons. Yes. Yeah. You, you don't want them to think Holy too much, Jeremy, cow. with your highfalutin education. Yeah, I guess right. I guess guess not. Yeah. So uh, thankfully, um, because this has been exposed for what it is, uh, they have pulled that particular uh, uh, training exercise, and uh, will hopefully. Get a, uh, a better. In the one. future, they're just going to screen Doctor Strangelove. <laughs> There's no fighting in here. This is a war room. I love that movie. Um, so on that note, that's going to do it for us this week. We have some announcements, some exciting news for us. Uh, the Free Thought Blogs has been launched, and this includes um, friend of the show Ed Brayton, PZ Myers. Um, and we're joining up with them. So from now on, you'll be able to find us at Free Thought Blogs. Um, I believe our you can still use our URL right. uh, www.cast.org. It's just going to point you to a different place. Right. So the blog will look different. It will have some new artwork. We have a new logo. Which it will have will advertisements for the first time. Um, our show won't ever have have advertisements, right, right. but the blog will. Non intrusive. Yeah. Yep. And uh, and so, yeah, I hope you'd come and support PZ and Ed Brayton and now us and, and all of the other, the other there. authors at freethoughtblogs.com. Yes. So in the meantime, send us your questions, comments, etc. to doubtcast at gmail.com. Find us on Facebook and Twitter slash doubtcast. And uh, we'll be back soon with another Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. 
catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.